2017 Sports Performance Teleseminar. Today I'm going to be talking with Seth Oberst on the line. Seth is a practicing PT out of Atlanta and uh, looking forward to getting to talk to him a little bit more about the topic of pain today. So, Seth, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing, doing great, great, Greg, and, and uh, I really, really appreciate, appreciate you having me on. You know, I can think back to the uh, my nascent PT career, and I always look forward to these teleseminars, so it's quite a, quite an honor for me to, to be on it today. Yeah, we're in year nine here, and it's been, uh, everybody seems to enjoy them, so glad to keep putting them on. And uh, so the big topic that's getting more and more popular and more discussion going around is the, the idea of pain and just how it comes about, how it can linger on, um, some of the different causes. So maybe if you could just start to talk off with uh, the, just a little bit of background, kind of the perception of pain and, and how it's caused and, and what maybe are some factors into keeping it lingering on in some people. Mm, sure. sure. Well, well, I think, I think it's, it's helpful, helpful to, to, to first kind of just preface this with, with who I work with um, clinically, um, and I think that will help kind of guide uh, my answer to your question, uh, is, you know, I work with people who are physically and cognitively, mentally stuck. And often this stuckness, this inability to um, move and think in a variable manner, uh, uh, manifests in the form of, I think, you know, persistent pain, potentially anxiety, um, depression, those kind of things. I mean, certainly I don't treat the mental aspect, but those are very much linked to um, uh, these persistent pain states. And, you know, these persistent pain states are almost always accompanied by high amounts of uh, stress. Um, and so when, you know, when, when someone experiences... Uh, trauma, whether that's a single, singular trauma or you know repeated traumas, or just um, long duration, low levels of stress, uh, you know, the, there's essentially a, a threat perceived, and pain is a particular, a particularly motivating output of the brain when we perceive threat or danger to our bodily tissues, right? And so, you know, when we are perceiving threat or danger, our body and our brain is going to produce pain along with other outputs in an effort to get us out of that um, potentially dangerous situation. Uh, and I think it's important to remember, as I'm sure many of your listeners are well aware, is that tissue damage is not required um, for us to experience pain. That doesn't mean that many people in pain don't have tissue damage, but the relationship there is uh, certainly not a linear one. Um, so much of what I'm doing with clients is is helping to change their perception. Um, you know, we all kind of build our models of the world. Uh, we all do for efficiency. And, you know, our model of the world is based on what we've experienced in our past, how we were raised, how we were, you know, any potential injuries or traumas in that history. And also what we expect to experience, our predictions about what, what's next and the sensory information that's coming in. And so, you know, people who have had um, or are undergoing currently or have had high levels of stress or trauma in their life are more likely to expect and experience danger. And so, therefore, maybe more likely to experience pain. No, that all makes sense. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that does. I mean, it makes 
makes a lot of sense. Um, the topic can still be, you know, abstract for many because I think many people still, uh, you know, consider the uh, not necessarily the old school approach, but where you know you you think about having an input that comes into the system and that immediately causing pain, but not recognizing that there's it's multifactorial um, to the entire system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no question. question. And, and I, I think, think, you know, it is, it is challenging and, and, um, to make it less abstract, but I think we can round this in um, clinical examples, right? I mean, you know, many, many people, if you really um, sit down and listen to the, and interact with, with clients who have had um, pain, and it doesn't have to last for very long for them to start to experience some of these things, um, you can see people who, uh, who start to grimace when thinking or talking about moving. Right? So they're experiencing pain on a, on a level that may not be necessarily indicative of current damage to that tissue. Um, there's certainly been a lot of studies, um, certainly Lorimer Mosley and David Butler have done quite a few, uh, for instance, on looking at people who have uh, persistent hand pain and looking at their hands through um, binoculars. So basically zooming in on that hand. And what they found is that that hand pain actually goes up. So. When you flip the binocular and you zoom out from the hand, that hand actually hurts less. And they actually measured swelling, and swelling actually changes as well, um, more of a you know, quote-unquote objective measure. And, um, you know, so I guess what I would encourage folks who are working with is that the literature unequivocally supports the fact that pain is an output of our brain, not an input. And it is only governed by the brain's appraisal and the boss appraisal of how much threat are they under or not. And so one of the things that we'll do often is one of the first things I'll do is, is teach them how to exhale. Because if they're experiencing pain, they're automatically experiencing a stress response to try to protect them. And so by teaching them to exhale, we can slow that system down, get them a bit more parasympathetic and they'll automatically, almost in, invariably have a reduction in pain. It may, may only be temporary, and of course, tissues can, of course, play a role in, um, in pain, but it's not the whole show. Yeah, I think the, I mean, breathing is, is the, another hot topic here, too, lately, and, uh, I mean, they two going hand in hand. Um, we, we've had multiple people on the site uh, talking about PRI, and there's a bunch of other systems that talk about breathing too. Um, but uh, something I know you talk about, uh, PRI, a bunch of other systems talk about, is, is mouth breathing and the implications of this. So maybe it kind of led me into the, the next question I got for you is, is what, are, what are some implications of mouth breathing and how can that start changing um, people people's uh, stress levels, but also uh, pain levels, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, all of these systems that we're kind of discussing, they are, you know, nested. <clears throat> Excuse me, what I mean by that is that they are interconnected and in influence each other. Right? So when we talk about mouth breathing, we really have to talk about uh, threat and stress first because people who <clears> – think about this, if, if – you know, this is the kind of oh, this, this story is somewhat cliche now, but imagine a you know lion burst into the room, right? What I have to do is I have to make sure that I get air in quickly because I don't know when I'm going to take the next breath in, 
or get, when I'm going to be able to take my next breath. So I have to make sure I get air in quickly. And so there's a couple things that we can predictably look at how people move and how they present. Um, there's a couple things that we can reliably say they're going to do. And they're going to breathe through the mouth, typically, not always, but typically, in an effort to shorten the airway. Right? So we can get more air in through our mouth than we can in our nose. There's less resistance there, and the airway is shorter. When we breathe into our mouths, we tend to pull our head forward to maintain that open airway and pull our ribs forward as well. So we're essentially extending our spines and pulling those ribs anteriorly as well. So think about a bell kind of rolling forward. It's kind of like a Yanda's upper cross, or, you know, upper lower cross type syndrome somewhat. Um, when it happens then, so essentially this person is making a compromise anatomically to um, avoid a, a threatening position or situation. And that can be a mental situation or physical. And so, you know, when, the, when we pull the airway forward and, to, and the jaw drops down, uh, we make a lot of compensations. It becomes very expensive for us if we continue to breathe through our mouth, particularly after that stressor has dissipated. You know, namely, when we breathe through our mouth, we don't humidify and condition the air. So it's not mixed. It's not, um, it's not, in the nose, we have nitrous oxide that's, that's mixed with the air, which is a potent uh, vasodilator. And when we're not, so if we're not vasodilating, you know, we're staying relatively vasoconstricted. And breathing through the mouth blows off a lot of CO2, which, is a, which further congests us and restricts blood, reduces blood flow. There's been some, some literature to support um, the fact that you can even see a 25% decrease in cerebral blood flow with chronic low levels of CO2 or hypocapnia. Um, and so, you know, now I'm breathing through my mouth, I'm stuck, I'm breathing more through this, so my nose is getting more congested, I'm getting less blood flow, which again is more stressful, so I keep breathing through my mouth. And so now I'm activating that sympathetic nervous system, Right, so the fight or flight response, so heart rate's going to go up, and that's reinforcing to the system then, of course, that you are under stress. So we're gonna tighten our muscles, and we get less oxygen to those muscles, so you've got muscles working harder, oxygenation that's decreasing because it's not being mixed with nitrous oxide in the nose. Um, and we, we see all kinds of compensations that now kind of spiral out of this. You know, we see people who, if you can't, if your mouth is open because you're breathing through it, by definition, the tongue is not the roof of the mouth. So now you're seeing a palate that may rise. Right? Palate is, of course, formed by the, the bottom of the maxilla. And so with a tongue that's against the maxilla, you're able to, to open up your sinus airway, open up your um, uh, nasal passages, and essentially spread the face. So we see a lot of, you know, forward head, narrow mouths, small mouths, crowded teeth, um, and, uh, and a lot of really high-tension strategies. And I'm sure many of your listeners, I, cer I certainly see it in my clinic um, all the time, is these people who, they can't relax their muscles, right? No matter, what, no matter how many stretches or mobile, you know, mobility techniques or foam rollers they, they squirm around on or how many times you wiggle a joint, they can't relax that system. And that comes back oftentimes to an overactive stress response, which can be... Um, driven primarily by a faulty breathing pattern, particularly breathing through the mouth. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, I could just go on and on about mouth breathing and how certainly, you know, there's been correlative studies that have shown higher kids with ADHD are more likely to be mouth breathers, certainly kids with allergies um, and adults with allergies. It may actually start to bring on allergies, um, I suspect, because you're not filtering the air. So you're breathing those allergens in way to the, into the airways. Um, it's, it's certainly um, associated with sleep apnea and obstructive airway, you know, obstructive sleep disorders. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of a nightmare if it's the only way that you breathe. You know, if, if strategies are such that, you know, you're really amped, you know, you really are running away from a lion or, um, you know, really working hard, your heart rate is elevated quite, quite significantly, then breathing through the mouth is appropriate to exchange air. We need a variable system of breathing. And uh, the problem is when you're stuck in mouth breathing, particularly at rest. This thought popped up into my head here. This wasn't necessarily something I had planned to ask, but um, just yeah. I don't have maybe. Hopefully, you got the answer. If you don't, no, no big deal. But uh, sure. how, what about chronic yawning? So, or is that just kind of basically the same thing? You know, <clears throat> that's a good question. I, chronic yawning, I, I believe, is a bit different. I, I've read a, a few different things on yawning. Some would say that it's an impetus to actually increase your your you know, quick, you know, quickly increase your oxygen level. So, you know, some would say, well, your oxygen levels have dropped a bit, and so you're going to yawn. It's a, it's a reflex to essentially get more oxygen into the system. Um, others would say it's actually a bit of a self-regulatory behavior where it's actually indicative that you are releasing some energy and kind of calming that system back down. I've seen it kind of both ways. My hunch is actually that when I see people yawning, it's typically, after we've done a really relaxing type intervention and it's, it's a bit of a kind of an energy release and they're just, it's kind of a stimulation to that parasympathetic um, um, tone. But, you know, to be honest, I don't have a great answer, um, a bona fide answer for you there, Greg. Yeah, so I've wondered that too, just because when sometimes, like you said, when you work on breathing with an individual um, and then all of a sudden when you get done, like their first reaction is to yawn and you're like, well, did I just starve them of? Well, I guess you're blowing out a lot of CO2 that they're not used to either. So, it, sure. And I think I think part of it has to do too, especially when you're doing a lot of breathing work that's not heavy breathing work, meaning really exchanging a high volume of air in a short amount of time, is you're actually probably raising the CO2 levels. And so I do wonder if that has something to do with with stimulating that yawning, because people who are chronically over breathing, um, you know, they're they're essentially in a state of respiratory alkalosis uh, quite a bit. And, and I measure this often uh, in, in the clinic with just some pH strips, and I'll have them come in, they have me spit in a cup, and we measure the actual pH. And we see a lot of people who are um, a bit alkaline, and when we get them to, to exchange some more um, CO2, um, because it's, of course, acidic, it's going to drop their pH back down to a neutral level. So I think, to be honest, I like to see yawning at the end of some breath work because typically those clients, those same clients are reporting they feel a heck of a lot better during and after their yawns. So I see it as a good thing. Okay. Well, then you, you kind of got into it a little bit too, talking about the alkaline, because this, this is going to have to do with the, the blood pH as well, and that can go into tissue quality, um, which ultimately can affect movement. Um, so maybe talk about a little bit there how, you know, everybody's trying to find the next best manual therapy technique, but 
you know, maybe this is part of the answer too. Sure. Well, I think, you know, <clears throat> I am by no means a um, physiology expert. However, I would say that, you know, whenever someone is um, enacting a sympathetic nervous system response, right, um, the breathing system is a main regulator of RPH. And the goal is to maintain a constant arterial level of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And that's the way that it can help regulate pH. <clears throat> now, of course, pH regulation also involves the kidneys, you know, bicarbonate, all that stuff. But, you know, when you see people who are chronically over-breathing, that CO2 is low. And so they tend to, in order to try to buffer that, um, lower CO2 and that uh, pH, they'll start to actually change the amount of secretion through uh, bicarbonate in the kidneys. And... When you've got this fluctuating imbalance in pH and you're now enacting a, a low level of stress response, of course, it's going to affect the oxygenation of the tissues and also their, their, their actual physical tone, right? The, the not necessarily tone meaning the definition of that muscle, but I mean tone as in the, the general level of contraction. And um, <clears throat> there were... Certainly, with with a, a dysregulated pH, um, you're going to see a dysregulated muscle um, because it's it's bathed in fluid, and that has to be regulated in order to maintain cell, um, you know, homeostasis. So I'm not sure if I answered your question there or not, but that's um, how I look at it. And you know, honestly, um, I'm not really sure exactly all the data there is on there on how a pH affects the, the quality of the muscle more than more than kind of what I what I was. All right, spoke about. Okay, yeah, I mean, just just scratching the surface, a lot of this stuff too, or uncovering things as well. Um, Absolutely. What's uh, so we kind of already checked, talked about one way of uh, you know, kind of addressing it. Breathing is breathing being one of them, um, because pain can be you know a magnifier. Or sorry, stress can be a magnifier of pain, but it can also be a contributor or causation of pain as well too um so being able to identify signs of stress uh can be an important preventative medicine medicine as well um so i've heard you talk about a a couple different ways of you know signs of stress and ways of recognizing it um maybe you can talk about some of those Uh, i've also seen you list two that i thought were pretty interesting myself which one was uh you know, just laying on your back and just feeling the different parts of your body. And it, is there anything that feels blurry? Um, the other one, which was interesting, was you said if you stand, your, if you're standing with your eyes closed and it feels like you're leaning forward, both of these could be signs of stress. Uh, maybe elaborate a little bit on both of those and some others. Sure. Well, so what I, what I mean when I wrote, wrote that is that it's a sign of a stress response, an adaptation to a th- a, the perception of a threat. And these are things that certainly blind spots has been um, found in the literature. I, I'm not sure you could find a whole lot on falling, that kind of falling forward. That's more of a clinical observation. Um, but, you know, with the, with the blind spots, it's essentially a lack of attentional, you know, modulation. The inability to perceive the body um, accurately and as a and holistically, meaning across the entire body, there's a, an accurate self-image. And we know this that you know, if you look at the brain of a skilled meditator, they're really able 
to engage and disengage their attention from various parts of their body. So if you have them you know, visualize their hand, they're able to modulate their alpha rhythms towards that hand, and then when you have them focus on the other hand, they're able to disengage from that hand and come back to the other. However, those who are in persistent pain, and I would, I would argue even those who are in um, relative high amounts of, of stress, um, they're unable to, so they get stuck. Their attentional systems are stuck. They tend to over um, pay, t- pay attention, you know, overly to particular areas of the body that are painful, and they tend to be, you know, very much externally oriented, worrying about external threats instead of the, the, their internal um, milieu. <clears throat> so, you know, when so what I'll do typically clinically is I'll have someone just land in the back and we'll just go through an easy body scan where I literally have them mentally trace out their entire body from head to toe. It takes about five minutes. And what's interesting, this has been found, this has been backed up by some of the work, um, some of the pain literature, is that, for instance, let's say their back hurts. So they can't engage, they can't disengage themselves well from their back. So if I have them, for instance, focus on a foot and then come back to their back, they, they struggle to find and feel that foot. They kind of, own, they're overly vigilant or attentive to their back, but they're really poor at describing and feeling that back. And, you know, if you have them draw their back, it tends to be distorted. You know, the vertebrae are off to one side, maybe one side looks enlarged on that drawing, and that's because uh, they don't have a great sense of, of, um, of what they an accurate sense of their body. And, and um, it's interesting, you know, we move kind of according to our self-image. And so if we have a distorted body image, we have a distorted movement uh, pattern and movement image. So, you know, stress affects our, our sensory systems and it distorts the information in a negative way. So that affects certainly our perception of our body. Um, with the other one, you mentioned kind of falling forward. I think literally it's, it's a bit of a leaning in to, to threats or to leaning into um, um, challenging situations that a person's in. And I see this so often, um, and it comes back to what we talked about kind of with the mouth breathing compensation. So you see a bit of spinal extension, flaring the ribs, high muscular tone, and uh, they're literally falling forward. Their bodies are coming forward. And you, so you see a lot of tension in the extenders, and the plantar flexors. And so my hunch is, too, honestly, is I think you see this a lot, why, why you can't, it's really challenging to regain dorsiflexion, right? And I think some of that has to do with the fact that they're unable to inhibit that, that uh, muscular tone um, because we haven't yet addressed why they feel threatened. They can't feel the ground accurately and um, feel kind of essentially grounded. And so they literally cannot feel their heels. So one of the first things we do with working with those folks is I'll have them uh, find and feel their feet. And we go through a couple of different ways in, in doing that. But typically it involves um, in changing that sensory motor input. So either me putting my hands on their feet or changing their, um, their movement patterns in relation to their feet. And they instantly feel um, you know, a bit more grounded and more centered. And again, that comes back to reducing the, the adaptations that occur from that stress response. So we've got to be able to calm that system. Yeah. It's almost like that falling forward. It's almost like a, 
It's li- it's, I believe it's a literal leaning in, right? It's leaning in the stressors. Now, we don't always see that. Sometimes you can see some, almost I think an exhausted state where somebody's been, they've, they've compensated and actually they're the opposite. They're kind of a posterior pelvic tilt, their shoulders are slumped, head is down, and they're a bit back on their heels. But the type A clients that I typically see are forward. And, you know, you got into it a little bit there too. Is this where, you know, mindfulness comes into to practice with, with movement, paying attention to, to how you're moving and what you're feeling um, when, you're, when you're starting to address this overall state? Mm, absolutely. Well, I believe that you cannot change something that you're not aware of. The only way, the only other way you would be able to change something is through <clears throat> that you don't have any control of. It would be a significant um, life event that forces your whole system to essentially reorganize. <clears throat> so yes, I, I believe mindfulness plays a part in every single thing we do. And I think if you look at any good system, any commercial system, whether it's PRI or <clears throat> excuse me, SFMA or DNS or whatever, is that the most effective interventions are the ones in which close attention is paid to the present moment and what you are doing and what you are feeling in that present moment. And, you know, I, I think that we have to solve stress, which I, I firmly believe is the scourge of the 21st century. Um, we have to solve it from the body outwards. And that starts with the ability to differentiate your um, sensory information. And you can only do that if you're paying attention, close attention. So from a practical standpoint, how do I do that? And like, well, <clears throat> the interventions that we give have to be new. They have to be sufficiently new to, to gain their attention and um, hold their attention. So that can be any intervention, right? Of course, you want to tailor that to what they have going on physically and neuromuscularly. But my beef with mindless exercise is that you're, while you are reinforcing something, because neuroplasticity you know, is, is inherent to the system, you're only reinforcing their, their learned patterns. So we have to pay attention in order to break that pattern. And uh, it's got to be important to them. You know? um, so that comes back to their specific situation and how this intervention should be helpful to them. And it also needs to be non-threatening. Right? You can't pay attention to something new uh, and learn from it if you're under a lot of stress or duress. And that includes pain. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and sorry, so I just want to say one other thing about this kind of bringing it back to mindfulness is, to me, mindfulness, of course, is, is an awareness of the present moment. And that is, I think, one of the biggest things that we've lost um, in, in current kind of society, for lack of a better word, not to get on my soapbox here, but the inability to stay in the present moment and to modulate and control your attention, I think is the greatest resource that we can teach ourselves, certainly, and the people that we work with. If we're, you know, we have a professional or a strength and conditioning coach. Because if you are stuck in your head and ruminating on thoughts, uh, the learning that you undergo will be incomplete and um, oftentimes insufficient. Yeah, the, and some going back to it too, uh, you know, one of the most helpful questions that I use in the clinic is just something simple as, you know, where'd you feel that at? And, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, some people they say, oh, I don't know, I didn't feel it anywhere. Um, the others will say, you know, it can be helpful too because they 
told you you felt it in one spot and you're like no 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 that's you know that was completely wrong I don't want you feeling it there that's not what we're going for like uh, you know stretch to the shoulder feeling shoulder impingement versus a lat stretch um, but also if you're setting someone up in the deadlift and they tell you they feel it in the back rather than their glutes and hamstrings and then getting them to actually feel their glutes and hamstrings then can be a novel experience for them as well Absolutely. No, no question. question. And, and, you know, uh, um, I think I it starts with that interaction with the client and, 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 and <clears throat> you know, bringing their attention. One of the, you nailed it um, with, with um, you know, where do you feel? Let's operate. I'll ask them, what do you feel? You know, and then open-ended questions. What do you feel? Of course, where do you feel that? What does that feel like in your body? You know, we're so dis- many, many of our people are so disengaged from their body, even high-level athletes. You know, I'm working right now with a, um, a, uh, a major league baseball pitcher, and uh, he had a pre-significant arm injury, and he had very little awareness of the fact that when he would extend his elbow, he would hold his breath and extend his ribcage. So certainly one can imagine, right, at the end of the throwing, at the end of the throwing cycle when they're reaching... Um, near full extension of the elbow, that if he's holding his breath and tensing his ribcage, he's going to change the amount of forces that are going through that elbow. So just by bringing his awareness to the fact that, hey, when you are moving your elbow into extension, you are, ex- you're, you are compensating otherwise in your body. And so bringing his attention to that allows him to have options. It gives him a choice, right? And that's what you basically described when you you know, you're <clears throat> talking about where do you feel that is now we start to engage that attentional system and help people to disengage from those old habits and, and stuck patterns that before they were by definition not aware of. And, you know, so when we think about this, for instance, this baseball player that I'm talking about, he holds his breath and, and, extends, his, and extends his spine because he hurt his elbow in full extension. That's how he, that's how he um, had his first injury while throwing. So, until we eradicate the fact that he is no longer under threat of injury when he extends his elbow, he'll, he won't be able to get beyond that. And so, you know, within a couple of sessions, he was able to significantly increase his velocity and move much more freely. And I think that comes back to having a mindful uh, approach, both with the client and my mindful approach to him, paying attention. Yeah, and uh, I mean, some of this too can be Obviously, if there's something that significant where the the athlete can definitely recognize the importance of being mindful with it, you know, they get the buy-in right away. But what about maybe when you're first starting to work with someone who's, you know, not necessarily has the, not bought in to this type of a philosophy or way of thinking? Um, is there anything that you do or analogies you use or ways to start getting buy-in from clients. Obviously, it might be some type of graded exposure and it, you know just asking simple questions like what you, what are you feeling. Um, but uh, anything that you use in the clinic there? Absolutely. So you know, I deal with this, of course, so frequently. People who are you know, I, I kind, of, kind of a mixed bag. Kind of at this point, I have a lot of clients that come to me for this specific. You know, these types of things, learning how to fully relax and be engaged in your body. But I also see a fair number who just have pain and think that they need some more stretches. And um, so one of the things I'll do is, is, excuse me, is really work on, one, 
uh, educating them on the, on the current situation and, and talking about much of what we've discussed about how the brain kind of perceives and constructs our reality. Now, a lot of times that doesn't quite get buy-in, but it starts that process just initially. But ultimately, in order for someone to buy-in to any, any technique, they have to feel it. And they have to change their kind of expectations or their model. And so we have to basically violate their expectations in a good way. So oftentimes what that means for me is uh, some manual interventions. So, for instance, I'll do a lot of facilitating on getting air out, regardless of what they've got coming in initially. We'll work on getting air out because what we know with that is it's going to help reset that system on multiple um, multiple subsets, right? All the way down from the pH of the blood to our perceptions of, of threat through the vagus nerve. So I help people to exhale, and, and usually I use my hands to do that. But we also find an intervention or a movement where, let's say, for instance, it hurts to bend my back, right? Bend forward, bending forward hurts. Well, what we do is we put them in a, I will put them in a position, and we'll work on a position that's not threatening for them, but they still learn how to bend their back. Maybe that's quadruped, or, uh, and they just do kind of a belly lift type thing. Or maybe that's on their back, and they just do a pelvic tilt. Um, if that's too threatening, we'll just visualize doing a pelvic tilt. And they don't even actually do that intervention if, that's, if, it's, if an actual pelvic tilt is, um, is too painful for them. But every time we change their expectations, meaning if they expect their back to hurt, now we round it and flex their back and it didn't hurt, I draw, help draw their attention to that fact, and now they can update their model of the world. They can say, hey, you know what? Bending my back isn't so dangerous as I thought, and therefore not as painful. And we subsequently expose more and more. You said great exposure. I'm a huge fan of it. I think it's that staple of really any good physical therapy interventions is um, we start to expose them to more and more variables where they feel safe, but yet violating their expectations in that, in that positive manner. Yeah, buy-in for these folks can be very challenging. And ultimately, it has to be something that they can feel. They have to feel it in order to trust it. Um, and so that takes repetition. But just talking someone through that um, often isn't enough. So they have to um, embody it a bit more. And that comes through my hands and the interventions that that, um, that the client and I work on. Yeah, because... Some people too that you can you can lose them pretty quick if you start going into too deeply into some of this stuff too. So you got to be oh, careful. Of course. <laughs> yeah, and you know I have a, I certainly love my theory. I love theory, as, as you can probably guess by this. So I really like to dive into that. But you have to ground it in, in reality. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll use a lot of examples in their own life. Um, you know, so we'll ask them about um, specific things that are, are that bother them. You know, I'll ask them about does this bother you or, or that? You know, what positions seem to bother you? And, and then I'll start to draw some attention to the fact that other positions don't bother you. And, and start to help them connect the dots on their own. Uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, you've got to, you've got to get into, into it and start moving. And um, you can't just sit there and lecture them about pain because you, you do lose people quite, quite quickly. Okay, uh, well, that about covers the the uh, outline that I had for you. Um, is it, maybe just if there's if people's really looking to dive deeper into this topic, uh, what are some good sources that you've learned from? And then uh, I also know you 
yourself put out a lot of this information. Um, so where can more people learn uh, about what you're doing? Sure. Well, well you, you know, know, I think a lot of my, you know, my personal mentors have been um, courses and books. You know, I certainly didn't learn this from any one person, although there's many people that, that are doing amazing things that I certainly respect. Um, I think the guys at iFast are doing awesome stuff. Um, certainly, you, you know, the, the NOI group out of Australia with Laura Mosley and Dan Butler, they're awesome. So anything you consume by any of those groups is, is excellent. Um, but I, I really look to books often, and books that are outside of, of the physical therapy realm. You know, a lot of psychology texts and, and, and engagement-type texts. So um, I have actually a whole list on my website, which is um, sethoberst.com. I have an essential book list, and everything that I read and recommend that's governed um, my learning and kind of self-development is um, all up on my website. So, uh, but you know, things like polyvagal theory, which is a great book on on how the you know the vagus nerve and how how it affects our our defense and um, and engagement type situations. Um, I'm certainly a big fan of. of Robert Sapolsky and, and Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, which is a great book. Um, that you can start to learn the, and understand the, the stress response and how that affects behavior from a global level all the way down to a cellular level. And um, and, and I just, you know, I read a lot of, of texts on how uh, the brain and body are interconnected. And a big brief opponent of that has been uh, a lot of Feldenkrais work. He's probably influenced my work more than or my interest more than any other writer. He's, of course, um, deceased, but uh, Body and Mature Behavior and The Potent Self are some of the best books I've ever read. Uh, so, yeah, and then, you know, so like I said, my website is sethoberst.com, and I, I write on that a fair amount. Um, I also do uh, you know, post on Facebook, which is just Seth Oberst, and uh, my Twitter handle, I think, is at Seth Oberst DPT. Um, so I post stuff up on all there too. And, um, yeah, I'm always looking for new information. So any of you listeners who are having or re- listening to this and, and come up with something they feel like is cool, send it my way. I'm always, um, I'm a kind of a rabid consumer of, of, of information in, regard, in regards to, um, behavior. But, uh, yeah. All right. Awesome. Uh, we'll make sure to get, uh, some of those links up on, the. Uh on the page too for any of the listeners so they can follow you along um, but just want to thank take the time to thank you for coming on again uh, it's been great and uh, thank you yeah, yeah my, my pleasure, pleasure Greg thank, thank you, you.